I'm Matthew Moore, and you're listening to In His Name, the Deluxe Edition. When I finally decided on the exact topic for my master's thesis, I knew I had to land an interview with Dr. Randall Balmer. He had an article in Politico titled The Real Origins of the Religious Right that was really the cornerstone to my research. You'll hear him mention throughout that he's working on a book that expands on that article. And that book officially came out in August and is called Bad Faith, Race and the Rise of the Religious Right. Fun fact about this interview, I recorded it at KXUA, the University of Arkansas's campus radio station for students. And due to my own stupidity, I blew out my soloed side of the conversation, just just my vocal. So what you'll hear from me is my laptop mic via Zoom. Despite my comedy of error, the conversation is really fantastic. We even discover some common friends along the way. If you haven't yet, make sure to subscribe to the newsletter. Think of it like the annotated notes of the conversation, a spot to go down your own rabbit holes. Link is in the show notes. Okay, here's my interview with Randall Bomber. If you don't mind, will you start with your name and your title? Randall Balmer, and I am the John Phillips Professor in Religion at Dartmouth College. Very good. And can you give a little bit of background on your research and kind of um, what what you spend most of your time doing? <laughs> okay, sure. <clears throat> I actually, uh, in, in, in graduate school, I actually trained to be a historian of colonial America. And uh, what happened was that uh, in my first job at uh, Columbia University, which lasted for 27 years, uh, I began in the late 1980s. And that was when the televangelist scandals were breaking. And uh, because I was in New York and because I, uh, I grew up as an evangelical, and this is part of my, my heritage, part of my DNA, for that matter, uh, I was getting a lot of phone calls from uh, reporters and uh, news outlets and so forth. And so uh, that prompted me uh, to begin to explore uh, evangelicalism. I wrote a book that uh, looked at evangelicalism from the grassroots because I was really unhappy with the uh, media portrayals of evangelicals in the late 1980s as um, being either backwoods country bumpkins or uh, people who were gullible, easily duped, uh, or who were the moral equivalent of Jim Baker and Jimmy Swaggart and Oral Roberts. And uh, having grown up in that world, I knew better. And that kind of took my <laughs> career in a very different direction. I've spent um, much of my career uh, looking at the history of the movement and in particular at the um, at the history of the religious right and the emergence of the religious right in the 1970s. Yeah. Um, I want to read something that I read that you said recently. Um, you said in a recent interview with Christianity Today, and when you were asked about um, giving advice about writing, you said this, quote, I believe that scholars have an obligation to communicate beyond the safety of their narrow, specialized academic circles, end quote. I first heard about you... Um, because you did an interview on the Colbert Report. And uh, I've read your opinion pieces in places like Politico, the Los Angeles Times. Uh, why do you feel it's so important to share your writings outside of the walls of academia? Well, I think that one of the reasons where the society is in such 
terrible straits right now uh, coming off of the, the Trump administration is that for too long, academics have regarded uh, the general par- public as kind of beneath them. And they uh, they don't deign to speak to a general audience. And I, I think, uh, as I said, I, I think uh, that scholars actually have an obligation to do so. Uh, I began doing so uh, actually back in graduate school in the early 1980s. I started writing op-ed pieces for my hometown uh, newspaper, the Des Moines Register, and I've just developed that discipline and kept that discipline uh, ever since. I, I just actually just uh, um, did a rough cal- calculation within the past year. I've uh, published uh, more than 40 op-eds in newspapers all across the country. And and I think, uh, again, I think one of the reasons we're in trouble is that scholars regard it as beneath them. They'd rather speak to an increasingly narrow um, cohort of of, uh, specialized colleagues uh, than engage the larger public. And so... uh, um, Coincident with my scholarship, uh, which I think, frankly, gives me some credibility, uh, I've also sought to uh, to speak to a general audience, and uh, I, I think that's very important. Do you worry though that there's that there may be too much explaining that has to happen? There's too much setup that has to be involved in the conversation before you can even before you can even like get to the, the, the piece of opinion. That's part of the challenge of it is, is to, to be able to commit uh, to, to uh, present things in such a way that uh, they are discernible. I, I example, uh, for example, I remember I did some uh, uh, PBS documentaries uh, early in my career. And I remember <laughs> a long conversation uh, that uh, the director and I had about how we were going to explain dispensational premillennialism without using the term dispensational premillennialism. (laughs) And in the end, we did use the term, I think, if I remember correctly, but we did, but we presented it in a way that, that was both um, uh, credible in terms of scholarship, but also uh, in a way that could be understood by, by the general public. And, you know, general public, you know, that's a, an amorphous term. I, I guess when I use that term, I kind of think of about uh, an educated uh, general, a generally educated general public or something to that effect. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it, it's a challenge certainly. And, and certainly you can't, you can't sustain the level of, of uh, kind of um, high scholarly conversation that you would say at an academic conference, perhaps, or, or uh, uh, an article that was written for uh, an academic journal. But I think you can translate at least some of what you, you're studying to a general public. Well, I'll give you an opportunity to do that right here. Okay. Can you give us an, an explainer or a difference uh, in when we're talking about mainline Christianity and evangelical Christianity. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think, I mean, I'm a historian, so I, I go back in history and try to make those sorts of distinctions. I think in the 19th century, you had uh, yeah, very little difference between the two. Uh, you begin to have some, uh, some separation, but it was just kind of Protestantism in general. And, and it was often called evangelicalism in the 19th century. Uh, I think what happens beginning probably, uh, well, the roots go back a little bit farther, but uh, 
in, in the latter decades of the 19th century, uh, you have uh, the beginning of a divide between what we would call mainline Protestantism today, and I'll explain that here in a minute, uh, and evangelical Protestantism, on the other hand. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Uh, most of them are sociological reasons. That is uh, industrialization, urbanization, the influx of non-Protestant immigrants into the cities. And about that same time, you had a, a group of Protestant uh, theologians and ministers who were advocating something called the social gospel, which held that Jesus is capable of redeeming not only sinful individuals, but sinful social institutions, such as the seven-day work week, uh, such as uh, you know, the various uh, um, uh, issues that the progressive movement uh, was targeting at that time. And in fact, the progressive movement and the social gospel really were pretty closely entwined in the decades surrounding the turn of the 20th century. At the same time, evangelicals were largely pulling back from the larger society, in part because what we just talked about, dispensational premillennialism. They began to believe, unlike their beliefs earlier in the 19th century, they began to believe that Jesus was coming back at any time to rescue them, uh, that is the faithful, out of uh, uh, a corrupt and, uh, and uh, uh, decaying society. And so that really absolved them from the task of social reform and social amelioration, uh, which had been their hallmark of evangelical uh, social action in the early part of the 19th century. So uh, around the turn or late in the 19th century, you begin to see these uh, two movements drifting apart. And uh, unfortunately, that has uh, continued um, and uh, evangelicals, uh, began to emphasize individual conversion, individual regeneration, as opposed to social amelioration. And, uh, uh, you know, correspondingly, mainline Protestants uh, tended to, to emphasize the opposite. And so you had the beginnings of this uh, divide in American Protestantism that uh, persists, uh, albeit in, in, in somewhat uh, transmuted ways, into the 21st century. You grew up evangelical, as you've said. I also grew up going to a small Southern Baptist church. Um, and there's an experience, I watched a little bit of your PBS documentary, and there's an experience that you talk about in here that I'm hoping you'll share. Um, in your PBS special, Mine Eyes Have Seen the Glory, you talk about a childhood encounter you had with your neighbor, Stanley. Can you share that experience? <laughs> sure. We were living in Bay City, Michigan at the time, and. Uh, and I was probably about uh, 12, 11, 12 years old. I, I don't remember exactly. And uh, uh, Bay City was and probably still is. Uh, I remember my father, who was a minister, saying that it was 75 percent Catholic when we were living there. And you know, I don't know if that's true uh, then or now, but probably it was overwhelmingly Roman Catholic. And uh, my next door neighbor, Stanley Strzelecki, we uh, we paid, played baseball um, on DeWitt Street, South DeWitt. Street uh, all the time with our neighbors and so forth. And we often played catch. I was uh, uh, mad about baseball at that time. And uh, in, in, in part, in large part, because of my father and my church and, and uh, uh, my, my piety, I was deeply pious. Uh, I 
was concerned about uh, Stanley and his um, his soul, his eternal fate. And so I remember, uh, I remember this very clearly. Uh, it was a rainy day, and uh, uh, we I, we were in the, you know, kind of a little shed off the of uh, our garage, and I finally summoned my courage to uh, to witness or to testify to Stanley, and I began with. Uh, the question, Stanley, are you a Christian? And of course, my understanding of a Christian at the time was uh, uh, an evangelical, born again uh, uh, believer, and uh, and he replied, uh, "Yes, yes, of course, I'm a Christian." You know, he was Roman Catholic, uh, and I just it, 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 the 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 response just utterly stunned me and shut me up. To be honest, I, the conversation didn't go any further than that. But I left that uh, that encounter, that exchange, persuade that he was lying to me. There's no way he could be a Christian because because he was a Roman Catholic, which was my understanding at the time. Yeah, it's I, I've had almost that exact same experience, uh, and and that's really why it stuck out to me. I remember uh, going to youth group as a middle schooler and a high schooler, and you know it would come time for prayer requests, and oftentimes prayer request time was essentially a time to gossip about what was happening in your community. And, <laughs> I and I remember, um, I remember having a friend who was really, really sick and really ill. And I remember asking for prayer requests for their health, but also saying, well, and also, you know, I know that they're a Catholic and so we should really pray for their salvation too. And, and, and that experience that you had reminded me that, you know, I, I'm a little bit younger than you, but these things are still happening, uh, you know, decades later. And, and I know for a fact that these conversations are still happening in the church that I grew up in. Um, so, so that really stuck out to me. Yeah, that's true. I, you know, the other thing I'll, I'll relate about uh, Stanley is that, you know, I spent, he spent time in my house. I spent time in his house. And uh, I remember on the living room wall, they were the, the, um, the uh, first of all, they had uh, the 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 Catholic um, uh, depiction of Jesus with the you know the open heart, which you know, freaked me out certainly. But uh, <laughs> also, they had the pictures of the two Johns mm. in the 1960s, uh, John F. Kennedy and Pope John the 23rd, and that was just and that was you know that was pretty standard in Catholic households in the 1960s. And uh, I remember that I remember that very 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 clearly. <laughs> you wrote you wrote the biography or you wrote a biography on Jimmy Carter. Um, what impact do you think has evangelical faith had on him as a president? Oh, I, it was profound. I don't think there's any question about that. Jimmy Carter sought to govern according to his religious principles and, and scruples. That said, he was also a, a, a true Baptist, that is a real Baptist, who also believed in the importance of the First Amendment, liberty of conscience, separation of church and state. So he did not try to impose his religious views on the nation. He was very careful about that. But he also believed that he was um, that he was uh, um, governing according to uh, the moral precepts that were very important to him and part of his identity. So that included um, recognizing that if the United States was to have any meaningful relationship with third world countries, especially Latin America, we had to divest ourselves of colonialism as much as possible. And that entailed uh, renegotiating the Panama Canal treaties which he did, and uh, and he he won 
um, the ratification of the Senate, even though it cost him dearly politically, but he thought that was the right thing to do. He thought that the American foreign policy should move away from the dualistic um, uh, ideology of the Cold War and toward an embrace of human rights and advocating for human rights. Uh, he um, uh, thought, sought throughout his presidency to bring peace to the Middle East, which was very much, uh, very much um, uh, dictated by his religious uh, uh, scruples and, and, and under understanding. And he came closer, frankly, than any president <laughs> since um, since Harry Truman, including Harry Truman, for that matter, uh, to try to, to bring some measure of uh, of uh, sanity to the Middle East. No, he didn't succeed fully. Nobody has <laughs> succeeded in that, but that was very much uh, as part of his his agenda. And he also uh, was uh, a so-called New South politician, and he made his uh, mark in, in doing so as governor of Georgia, but also as president in trying to move away from uh, the racism that has so stained American society and culture. Again, not fully successfully, <laughs> we're not there yet, but uh, Carter recognized uh, the importance of that. So that I think that was just, uh, those are just some of the many ways in which his faith informed his presidency. And when I asked him about whether or not uh, the term progressive evangelicalism uh, and uh, being a Southern Baptist, and you know this uh, yourself, uh, the term evangelical does not uh, roll easily off the tongue for a Southern Baptist. And Carter is the same way, I think a bit suspicious of the term, but uh, he acknowledged in our conversations that uh, that he would he would fall into that category. So I, I Carter um, Carter's a remarkable man. I um, you know uh, historians I think are kind of coming around to recognizing that his presidency was not as so bad as his successor made it out to be. Let's put it in in very blunt terms. Um, but it, anyone being president late in the 1970s would have had a difficult time. Um, one of the things that uh, historians do when they're feeling a bit uh, a bit rowdy uh, is uh, engage in counterfactual speculations and have often uh, mused that uh, had Ronald Reagan beaten Gerald, Gerald Ford in 1976 for the Republican nomination which he almost did and had he gone on to be elected president in 1976, as opposed to 1980, I think it's uh, very, very possible, if not likely, that he would have been a one-term president as well. It just was not an easy time to be president. And I, I've, I've often said about Carter, um, he was dealt a bad hand as president, and it's a hand that he at times played badly. Uh, I will concede that. But uh, he did seek to govern according to his uh, his religious lights. And it sounds like there was a lot of personal conviction in him taking this office, too, that, you know, I think when we think of a president now that there's such a cast of of lobbyists and staff and all of these people who are heavily invested in the role that, you know, when we're looking at the 19 late 1970s, you know, this is a very different job than, than what we're looking at now. Um, yeah, probably that's, there's probably some truth to that. I, I think, I think that's right. Yeah. And, 
you know, I, 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 and Carter, you know, I, I, I'm not going to make the case that he was one of our greatest presidents. I would never, uh, I, I don't think you can make that. I do think he was our greatest ex-president, but that's a whole other conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in many ways, his post-presidency, and he has, he, he, he has acknowledged this um, in our conversations. He said his post-presidency was really his second term. This is, he's done, since leaving the White House, what he would have done had he been reelected in, in 1980. I want to dig in a little bit to, to conversations about abortion here. Um, uh, so in your article with Politico, um, you lay out a compelling timeline that involves folks like Jerry Falwell, Paul Weyrich, and Francis Schaeffer. Um, I want to work through that timeline with you just a little bit. Um, so let's start with 1968. Um, this is before Roe versus Wade makes it to the Supreme Court. Um, who was talking about abortion in the days before the Supreme Court case? Roman Catholics. <laughs> I mean, that's uh, it, it was a Catholic issue. It was actually a Catholic issue in uh, American society up uh, well, it's still a Catholic issue, but uh, it was uh, pretty much solely a Catholic issue until the late 1970s. Um, and evangelicals simply weren't interested in this. Um, there's a, you mentioned 1968. I assume you're referring to this um, uh, conference that was uh, sponsored jointly by Christianity Today magazine, which is the flagship magazine for evangelicalism, or certainly white evangelicalism, and uh, another evangelical organization called the Christian Medical Society. And they convened over several days, bringing in, you know, heavyweight theologians from the evangelical world to talk about the morality and the ethics of abortion. And they, 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 they actually published their proceedings. So, you know, anybody can take a look at it for themselves. But at the end of that conference, they issued a statement, and I'll paraphrase because I don't have it immediately in front of me, saying, well, we really don't under, don't know whether or not abortion is morally wrong, but we think it, that uh, uh, there should be provisions made for legal abortions. I mean, again, I'm paraphrasing um, uh, that statement, but it was at best an equivocal statement on abortion. And it was a, a statement that left open the door for legalized abortion. That, that leads me in very well. So in 1971, <clears throat> the Southern Baptist Convention meets in St. Louis and they pass a real they pass a resolution that says that they will, quote, work for legislation that will allow the possibility of abortion under such conditions as rape, incest, clear evidence of severe fetal deformity, and carefully ascertained evidence of the likelihood of damage to the emotional, mental, and physical health of the mother. This sounds fairly progressive, no? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, I mean, and, 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 and it does. Yeah, and I want, and, and I'll let that that point uh, uh, settle in. Uh, but I also want to say that uh, the the whole issue of abortion at that issue at that time was not ideologically uh, divided the way it is today. Uh, you know, it, um, you've read what I, somewhat I've written about abortion. I, I just, actually just finished a, a, another book that will come out in August that is really an expansion of that political art, article with, you know, all the footnotes and all, you know, and, 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 and expanding, you know, actually um, mounting more evidence for my argument. Um, but one of the things that was really 
striking to me is when I looked for the earliest evangelical opposition to abortion, one of the earliest voices, and by that I mean uh, among two or three voices, was an evangelical politician um, who's actually my next project for for a book, uh, for a biography, um, Mark Hatfield, senator from Republican senator from Oregon, uh, was you can make the case he was the first evangelical, certainly the first prominent evangelical to oppose abortion after the Roe v. Wade ruling of 1973. So um, today we look at the abortion issue as you know, right versus left, but it was by no means uh, that. Um, the case in the early 1970s, and and Hatfield uh, politically would 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 uh, would line up on the left of the political spectrum um, in in large measure because of his uh, his evangelical convictions. Yeah. So in 19 uh, let's see, in 1973, Roe versus Wade happens. The Supreme Court votes seven to two, protecting a pregnant woman's liberty to choose to have an abortion without excessive government restriction. One year later in 1974, the Southern Baptist Convention meets again and reaffirms their position. And again in 1976. So we're looking at eight years of of publicly stating this stance on abortion that um, if we were to look at it in 2021 terms is essentially the stance of the pro-choice movement, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And the Southern Baptist Convention, let's remember, was not exactly a redoubt of liberalism in the in the in the 1970s. Uh, no, it's absolutely right. And and the other thing that happens and uh, that uh, I'm sure, you know, is that when the Roe v. Wade decision was handed down, several prominent evangelicals, including W.A. Criswell, of First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas, applauded the ruling saying this is the right decision on the part of the Supreme Court. So um, yeah, all of this is what I call the abortion myth. The abortion myth is the fiction that the religious right coalesced as a political movement in opposition to Roe v. Wade in 1973. It's simply not the case. It's, uh, it's, it's uh, an utter fabrication uh, to, to make that statement. Yeah, and you even make the claim that that there is this this uh, mythology that Jerry Falwell himself builds that that he claims to remember, you know, in 1973 when the Roe versus Wade case came down, that that he is, you know, thinking in his head like this is the this is the moment when I knew, uh, and there's there's no evidence of that, right? He wrote that 14 years after after the Roe v. Wade decision, and right. by his own admission, he did not pre- preach his. And his first anti-abortion sermon until February of 1978. Now, you think about that. That's more than five years after the Roe v. Wade decision. Uh, so February of 1978 is his first anti-abortion sermon. Um, well, you make, the, you, you make the case that, as you said, that, that this is somewhat of a myth that's been created by the religious right and and probably more specifically folks in the moral majority like Jerry Falwell and Paul Weyrich. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you see as the real motivation for this political action committee? Oh, it, 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 the, the motivation is very clear. Again, uh, looking at the historical record, uh, the, they were upset 
because the Internal Revenue Service was trying to deny tax exemption to racially segregated institutions, such as notably Bob Jones University in Greenville, South Carolina, but also uh, other uh, segregation academies that had uh, risen up uh, principally in the South, not entirely, uh, after uh, after the Brown decision of 1954, as desegregation was beginning to be uh, enforced in uh, school systems around the country, the immediate catalyst for uh, the IRS action against those schools was a case that came before the district court for the District of Columbia called Green v. Connolly. Now, the background for Green v. Connolly was that in Holmes County, Mississippi, there, uh, a group of parents got together and they had noticed, first of all, that the number of white students in the first year of desegregation in Holmes County dropped from, uh, I'm sorry, I don't remember exactly, something like 628, don't quote me on that number, 628 uh, or 641. 771, yeah, Seven, 771 to 28. That's it. 771 white students in the public schools to 28 in the first year of desegregation. The second year of desegregation, that number dropped to zero. At the same time, there were three church-sponsored segregation academies in Holmes County, Mississippi, that were applying to the IRS for tax-exempt status. And this group of parents said, no, this isn't right. So they filed suit to block the IRS from issuing tax-exempt status to these uh, these schools. That case was joined with another one. It, uh, this has a kind of long uh, um, uh, judicial history, but it finally comes up to the District Court, the District of Columbia, and on June 30th, 1971, the District Court ruled that any institution that engages in racial segregation is not by definition a charitable institution. Therefore, it has no claims to tax exempt status. And as the IRS began to enforce that ruling over the course of the 1970s, and by the way, Richard Nixon, after that ruling, the president said, you know, instructed the IRS not to issue any more tax exemptions to such institutions. Uh, as the IRS began to enforce that, that got the attention of people like Jerry Falwell, who had his own segregation academy in Lynchburg, Virginia, and other evangelical leaders. And that is what galvanized them into a political movement that eventually became the religious right. It had nothing whatsoever to do with abortion. Abortion was kind of accidental uh, later, in the, later in the 1970s, but I expect you'll probably want to um, tackle that with a separate question. Yeah, well, it's interesting to note, too, that Richard Nixon was a Republican, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and so there's this, you know, there's, there's so many just like conflicting narratives happening within this conversation that, you know, when you step back from it all and you look back with, you know, the hindsight that we have that, you know, it seems just almost silly to, to, to put forth this sort of narrative um, that, that has come across. So you say that Falwell and Weirich recognized that organizing evangelicals to defend racial discrimination would be a challenge. 
Um, what was their strategy to overcome this challenge? Well, um, Weirich, and, and this is uh, this is from a personal conversation I had with him you know, back in 1990, uh, and he told me he he'd been trying. Uh, first of all, we should understand Paul Weirich was a, a a very prominent conservative political activist. I mean, hard right conservative political activist, and uh, he he understood the potential of a voting bloc consisting of evangelicals, white evangelicals. Actually, later in his career, he acknowledged that this movement didn't have much appeal to, to African-Americans or people of color. And, uh, and he told me in our conversation, he said, I've been trying since the Goldwater campaign in 1964 to get these people interested in politics. He said, I tried everything I can imagine. I tried the school prayer issue. I tried the abortion issue. I tried the uh, uh, women's equal rights issue. I tried the pornography issue. Nothing got their attention until the IRS started going after these racially segregated evangelical schools in the 1970s. And all of a sudden, uh, they perked up and they got interested in becoming involved politically. So he... Uh, I, I kind of call him the evil genius behind uh, the, the religious right, uh, but because he was a very savvy, very savvy political strategist. And I think he recognized, well, I know he recognized later in the 1970s that if he really wanted to get a grassroots movement together, uh, he needed an issue other than a defense of racial segregation because, you know, even then uh, racism was not, <laughs> you know, it was not, uh, avowed racism, racism, at least, was not terribly popular. And so he knew he needed another issue. And what happened was really almost an accident. Um, he went to the uh, head of the Republican National Com uh, Committee, um, former Senator Bill Brock of, of Tennessee. And he said, I, you know, I want to I'd like some some help, some funding, because I want to organize these evangelical voters uh, in, in 1978, the, the midterm elections. And Brock looked at him and said, you know, who are these people? What are you, what are you talking about? And uh, Weirich, uh, after that conversation, was kind of uh, mad about it. And he said he vowed, he said, to go out and elect some unlikely people in 19. 78 with the help of evangelical voters. So what happened, uh, just to, to finish out the narrative here rather quickly, is that in 1978, uh, he targeted four Senate seats, uh, one in New Hampshire when Thomas McIntyre, a Democrat, was running for re-election, one in Iowa when uh, Dick Clark, not not the musician, but Dick Clark, the politician, was running for re-election in Iowa, uh, very popular, uh, and two, uh, two Senate seats in, uh, in uh, Minnesota. Uh, one of them was for the unexpired term of uh, Hubert Humphrey, who had died. And uh, what happened in those uh, Senate races is that on the final weekend of the campaign, pro-lifers, Roman Catholics, leafleted church parking lots in those states. And two, day, two days later, in an election with a very low turnout, all four, uh, all four Republican so-called pro-life politicians won their elections. And, and, and in so doing, they, they utterly overturned all polling and all expectations. 
And when those results came in, uh, Weirich knew he had his issue. I remember uh, reading through his papers, which are actually out in the uh, Laramie, Wyoming, at the University of Wyoming, of all places. And uh, it, the correspondence surrounding that election, it's, it's like, you know, the, the papers start to sizzle <laughs> because Weirich recognizes he's finally got the issue that is going to galvanize these uh, grassroots evangelical voters into uh, the voting block that he had been fantasizing about since 1964. There was also a movement involving Francis Schaeffer, who uh, was a man who was creating documentary seems like a pretty generous term, but was creating <laughs> films to to put forth the idea of how terrible and how catastrophic abortion was. Um, what impact do you think those films had? Uh, Schaefer was not uh, a white evangelical, is, is my understanding. Is that right? Well, I, no, I think you could make the case that he was, yeah, but... Uh, um, uh, and frankly, he came out, comes out of a more fundamentalist background uh, than than evangelical. But yeah, what happens is, and 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 the timing here, I think, is very important. Here we're talking about the midterm elections of November of 1978. This is when Weirich discovers abortion uh, that it might work for him as a as a political issue, and then uh, in the first three months of 1979, just two months later. Francis Schaeffer begins touring the country with a series of films that feature himself along with a pediatric surgeon from Philadelphia, C. Everett Koop. And this is a six part series. It's I have to say it's it's agonizing to look to, to look at it because it's very slow pace. It hasn't aged but very well either. <laughs> I have to say it probably hasn't. No. Um, and these films were produced by a Schaefer's son, Frank Schaefer. And uh, Frank Schaefer has been very clear about this, that that uh, they decided to kind of include abortion into this uh, series uh, kind of at the last minute. And Francis Schaefer was not terribly uh, enthusiastic about doing that. But the argument of this series was that any society that allows abortion will very quickly also come to embrace both infanticide and euthanasia and was in a spiral of moral decay that Francis Schaeffer called secular humanism. And as that uh, uh, film series began to circulate around the country in early 1979, evangelicals start to get attuned to the abortion as an issue that they might care about. That said, uh, Frank Schaefer has told me, and, and he was very clear about this and very uh, unequivocal about this. He said that film series didn't get nearly the buzz or the attention in evangelical circles that their earlier series had generated uh, called Whatever Happened to the Human Race. Um, and so he said, even then, um, you know, they, they finished that three months and they were kind of, uh, of, of touring with that film. And uh, Frank, according to Frank Schaefer, uh, they were kind of disappointed that uh, it, it really hadn't, hadn't clicked with the evangelical audience. And the other thing I'll, I'll say, and, and, and just to kind of give, give a sense of the timing, um, I, I think in many ways, the turning point of the 1980 presidential election, at least in terms of the evangelical voters, was the huge rally down in 
Dallas, Texas in uh, August of 1980 at Reunion Arena. And on August 22nd, Ronald Reagan addressed that crowd. And um, he, this is where he famously said, I know this group can't endorse me, but I want you to know that I endorse you and what you're doing, brought down the house and arguably sealed the evangelical vote. When I looked through his, uh, his uh, speech out at the Reagan Library in, in, uh, in uh, California, and he mentions in that speech, he says, he talks about creationism. He says that if he were on a desert island, the one book he would want with him is the Bible. He goes on to uh, castigate Jimmy Carter's Internal Revenue Service for trying to rescind the tax exemption of these racially segregated institutions. And in that stem-winding speech before estimates vary, 10 to 20,000 evangelicals in Dallas, Texas, Reunion Arena on August 22nd, 1980. He did not mention abortion even once in that speech. So even that late in the 1980 campaign, evangelicals uh, still were not, uh, were not uh, rallying around the anti-abortion cause. Well, and it's interesting, too, because you you make the point that by 1980, Jimmy Carter, both as governor of Georgia and as president, sought to reduce the incidences of abortion, whereas Ronald Reagan, by contrast, as the governor of California, uh, had signed into law the most liberal abortion bill in the country. Yeah. <laughs> was was there any disconnect that was being seen by the, Rep- the Republican Party and by Republican voters at that time? Well, you know, who knows if they saw it or not. If, if they did, they they um, turned the other way. And, and uh, you know, that's not the only anomaly, anomaly coming out of the, the 1980 presidential election. Uh, first of all, you have the larger issue of evangelical voters turning against one of their own, Jimmy Carter, in favor of somebody who had, uh, you know, at best a an episodic church-going relationship uh, or church-going habits uh, coming into the 1980 election. But also, and again, I remember this very, very well, in the late 1970s, evangelicals um, believed that that, uh, divorce, particularly divorce and remarriage, was something akin to the unpardonable sin. Uh, if somebody was divorced in, in an evangelical con- congregation, chances, chances are that person was either ostracized or expelled from that congregation. And yet, going into the 1980 election, uh, evangelicals set that all aside. Now, I, uh, in the course of you know, many years ago, in the course of doing um, an earlier book on this topic, went through the pages of Christianity Today magazine in the 1970s and then again in the 1980s and counted the number of anti-divorce uh, articles in, again, the flagship magazine of evangelicalism. And I forget the numbers, but after 1980, that number just dropped almost <laughs> out of sight uh, because evangelicals said, oh, you know, this is our, this guy's our political hero and uh, our political messiah. And, uh, you know, we don't care about divorce any longer. Now, that's a bit of an overstatement, but uh, the the contrast is is remarkable. Yeah. So Ronald Reagan wins the presidency in 1980. 
And upon entering office, he immediately steps up with an executive order to end abortion. Is that right? Yeah, I, I did he really? I, did he no, 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 I was no, being facetious. No, he, no. And that's, you know, that's one of the real anomalies of the Reagan administration, the very people who put him in office. Uh, he pretty much ignored. Now, he did make uh, an appointment, which was certainly symbolically important, I think, to the anti-abortion crowd uh, by appointing um, C. Everett Koop as, as uh, Surgeon General of the United States. And he made a couple of other um, lower level appointments, uh, people like uh, Robert Billings and um, Gary, what's his name? Gary Bauer uh, had Positions of some influence within the uh, the Reagan administration, but uh, by and large, he did not prosecute the agenda of the religious right as vigorously as they had reason to believe he would. And in fact, you know what kind of got me into this whole question uh, was um, a gathering at Washington D.C. in November of 1990, ostensibly to celebrate the 10 years of uh, 10 years after the election of, of Ronald Reagan. And one of the uh, real themes that came out of that gathering is a closed door gathering of religious right leaders. I still don't know why I was invited there, but that's a whole other question, um, including prominently Paul Weirich himself was a real disappointment that Reagan uh, really did not uh, pursue their agenda as as um, as he had promised. So we have eight years of Ronald Reagan as president, followed by four years, George H.W. Bush, then eventually eight years of George W. Bush. So in a 28 year span, we have 20 years of Republican presidency and ostensibly a pro-life president. Um, what kind of progress is made with abortion rights during this three-ish decades? Well, I, you know, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to generalize about that. I, I think that um, on the face of it, not much. I mean, uh, the anti-abortion movement didn't really come away with all that much from these presidencies. However, uh, judicial appointments are very important. And uh, so you know, this is where they could point to uh, what they would understand as progress uh, on that issue. Um, certainly with George uh, W. Bush. And, and of what I find so fascinating about judicial appointments, and this, this is true through the Trump administration, as, as I think is, is, is very obvious, is that even though these Republican presidents ostensibly or arguably owed their presidencies to the religious right, they did not appoint evangelicals to those positions. And I think the reason for that is that um, there's really been no tradition of uh, evangelical uh, jurisprudence for arguably forever, at least back until, at least not since the late, uh, since the 19th century. And so what's happened is that uh, evangelicals have really um, sort of outsourced their, their, um, judges uh, or, or their their legal thinking to conservative Catholics instead. So uh, the people who uh, George W. Bush appointed, as well as Trump, uh, would be people who uh, were out of that tradition, rather than any evangelical 
uh, lawyers or judges themselves. And, you know, uh, when you think about it, you know, uh, name me half a dozen um, uh, religious right folks who are credentialed in, in any way as as um, as legal uh, minds, uh, you know, being on the appeals court or, or, or some other qualification for that. Now, I think that's changing and it will change. Uh, I remember um, when I was writing Thy Kingdom Come, I had a conversation with uh, Michael Ferris, who at that time was the president of uh, Patrick Henry College. And he said uh, the thing he hears most from parents who send their students to send their children to Patrick Henry College is I want my kid to be on the Supreme Court someday. So that pipeline, I think, has opened up. Um, I'm not sure it's produced all that many people um, into into judicial uh, judiciary appointments yet, but I'm, I expect it probably will happen. Well, it's interesting because, <clears throat> I mean, I grew up evangelical and I, and I know that there's almost this um, there's almost this uh, hesitation towards any sort of uh, what's it, what's the word I'm looking for? Any sort of like, uh, like titles or, you know, when, when I think about like the pastors who I grew up with, you know, they almost looked down on folks who went to seminary because they said, well, seminary is where, you know, seminary is where your thoughts get tainted. Mm-hmm. And like, I, I am, I am hearing directly from God and I don't need seminary to teach me commentary or to, to teach me what God is already doing in my life. Um, there's sort of this like apprehension towards whether it's higher education, whether whatever it may be um, that we saw certainly with, with Trump, right. That, that people love Trump because he wasn't a product of the system that he was, you know, someone who came in and was going to change the way that we looked at politics because he wasn't a politician. You know, the same can be said about, you know, folks who were pastors where, you know, I'm, I, I, I want to be a pastor, not because I've gone to seminary and I've learned all of these things, but because God is calling me in spite of all of those things. Do you think there's an element of that that's happening as well? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, you can make an argument that uh, seminaries where piety goes to die <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, I'm a product. I mean, I have a degree from well, two degrees, two degrees from two different seminaries. I've taught in two different seminaries, and uh, you know, the, to be honest, there's something to that. <laughs> well, and, and I went but, to a, I went to a conservative Christian college, and I walked away from there, and. Uh, you know, I came in thinking that women shouldn't be pastors and that gay people were an abomination and left right. thinking the exact opposite at a conservative right. Christian college. Right. And so there's there is a little bit of validity to that thought. That sounds like a good education to me. <laughs> I hope so. Uh, yeah, I hope so. In many ways, it was. Um <laughs> Yeah. Do you mind my asking where it was? Uh, so I went to Greenville. It's Greenville University now, Greenville College, oh, just yeah. outside of St. Louis, Missouri. I, I I have uh, um, the former president there, Jim Manoia, is one of my best yeah. friends, actually. He's oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he, yeah. Actually, he just asked me to to write an endorsement for his his book, which is a compilation of uh, chapel addresses he gave at, at Greenville. So, oh, yeah. that's wild. I actually lived in. Uh, so his uh, his wife, who passed away, uh, they named uh, they named a hall after her at Greenville. And I lived after in Manoia Hall. For, for a year. So small right. world. Um, that's wild. 
So, you know, Brian Hartley. I do. Yes. Yeah. I, um, Brian is, Wonderful a, guy. he really is. And he, you know, the whole religion, the whole religion world at Greenville, it's so interesting. And a lot of people will say this about conservative Christian colleges is um, that those places often have the most liberal religion and philosophy departments <laughs> because, you know, they're the ones who are, they're, they're essentially training students and they're training young minds to, to question all the things that, you know, that they grew up with. And, and one of the things that I really took away from my time at Greenville was, um, you know, what, what was the things that my parents believed and my parents taught me to believe, or, you know, the elders of the church taught me to believe, what do I actually believe? And is it okay if those things are not the same? Um, and, you know, I came away from Greenville with a very different perspective on church. And I still want to believe in the church, but it's getting harder and harder to do uh, with every passing day. But yeah, that's that's very that's that's wonderful that you know Dr. Hartley. He's uh, he's a wonderful oh, person. Sure. Yeah. There was a there was a group of there was a group of students uh, when I was there who created a uh, created a band on campus and they called it Brian and the Hartleys. <laughs> and uh, and he got such a kick out of it. And actually, like at the very end of the school year, um, he came on and played drums on a song with the band. And it was just like such a such a wonderful moment to see someone who like, you know, is, is a very like astute person and not really someone you could ever imagine like cutting loose and to and to see him do that is, was a very wonderful yeah. moment rick mcpeak too yes oh man rick yeah. mcpeak is uh it's funny i i have a wonderful story about mcpeak as well we as freshmen we would go on essentially a religious retreat to chicago and yeah. uh we would yes. visit a eastern orthodox that. church yeah, and right. uh and that was really an eye-opening experience for me, like being able to, being able to, you know, I grew up in the middle of nowhere, like in Southern Illinois, about two hours South of Greenville, um, yeah. which is just, you know, coal mines and, and cornfields and seeing, uh, you know, seeing all of these Hare Krishna and, you know, Eastern Orthodox and synagogues and mosque and all of these things was just a really eye-opening experience for me. So um, yeah, th those folks were, were wonderful people. What, what do you think explains the enduring power of the white evangelical movement when the nation's demographics and religious identification are moving in another direction? Yeah, that's a very good question. I'm not sure I know the answer to that. I think part of it has to do with, uh, and I think one of the reasons for the success of the religious right was the, was the um, rhetoric of victimization. And uh, Falwell was very good at that. Uh, Pat Robertson was very good at that. He may still be. I don't know. I haven't, I haven't checked in on him in, in, in decades, it seems. Um, you know, oh, we're being we're being uh, persecuted in some ways. And I actually just uh, I just came out with a book on, on the church state issue, uh, which in which I, I kind of worked this out a little bit. Uh, what's fascinating to me is the different posture that uh, white evangelicals have taken uh, toward the, the uh, society, even from the 1960s to the present. That is to say that after the school prayer decisions were handed down by the Supreme Court in the early 1960s, the counter argument was, wait a minute, 
this is a majority Christian culture. We should have Christian prayers in the, in the public schools. We should have prescribed Christian prayers in the public schools. And after all, we're the majority. So the majoritarian argument was what they used at that time. With the advent of the religious right in the late 1970s, they began to shift ground. And I think you saw it uh, um, uh, you know, kind of full flower uh, in in the Trump uh, campaign and the Trump presidency. Now, oh, we're the ones who are persecuted. We're the victims. We're the ones who are, and, and, there, and there is some kind of, there is some sort of uh, validation in our society to becoming, uh, to, to claim victim status. Uh, you see it on the left, certainly, but you also see it on the right now, I think, with the religious right. So part of the reason for the persistent, to get back to your question, part of the reason for the persistence of, 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 of white evangelical political influence is that they are very, very, first of all, they're very susceptible to the rhetoric of victimization, but they're also very good at, at producing the rhetoric of victimization. And I also think parenthetically, and perhaps where I'm getting ahead of where you want to go here, but one of the reasons for the widespread support of Donald Trump, who by any measure is not unlikely hero for evangelical Christians who claim to be concerned about family values and things like that. But one of the reasons for the attraction of, of Trump is that he speaks the language of victimization maybe better than anyone I've ever seen in, in American history. Uh, now, it's always about himself. He's the victim, of course. But there's something, there's some sort of resonance, I think, with that language of victimization. I think the other reason for the persistence of, of the influence of white evangelicals in politics is that uh, the religious right has fused so uh, um, um, so completely with the hard right precincts of the Republican Party. And this is a product a process that began in 1980 and has continued to the present. So that I think the two, the two are virtually indistinguishable. Uh, the religious right is for the Republican Party. Uh, they have become the Republican Party, Republican Party's most reliable constituency, much the way that labor unions were much, were at one time the most reliable constituency of the Democratic Party. And, uh, you know, we know the state of labor unions today in American society. And, uh, you know, in comparison, the religious right is certainly um, uh, held on to a great deal of, uh, of power and political influence. You actually answered uh, my second question in with that, my second question, no, no, it's wonderful because we can kind of elaborate on it more. It was where you, I was going to ask, why would socially conservative white evangelical support Trump? But you essentially answered that. And I think that there's this element of, um, you know, it, it's, it's interesting when I find when I look back on my upbringing, um, when I'm reading stories of uh, whether it's Jesus's parables or, you know, I'm looking at certain stories um, for example, the story of, you know, uh, the, the parable that Jesus gives of the, the talents, right. That it's very easy for me to look at that as like, oh, or, or the, the prodigal son is a very good example. Um, when we look at the story of the prodigal son, it's very easy for me to place myself in the role of the prodigal son. But when I actually look at my role and my privilege in this world, like I'm probably more the father, 
or better yet, I'm the other, I'm the other side, right? The one who's angry that I didn't get the attention. Um, And I think that there's an element of that happening with Trump too, that, that when we look at these stories or we look at these parables, like as you want to be the likable character in the story. You want to be the person who, you know, when you look back on it, like you're the one who has the redemption story. But in, in most cases, you know, when we look, you know, the story of the Israelites, right. It's easy for us to see ourselves as the exiled people. uh, But in all reality, we're the Egyptians. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I wonder if there's an element of that that's happening with Trump. And, And you kind of talked about this idea of, you know, persecution or martyrdom or victimhood that that Trump is always is always the victim of everything that ever happens to him. And and we want to aspire to be as much of a victim as Donald Trump has been. Do you think there's an element of yeah. that happening? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, right. Yeah, and 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 the 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 also the other thing about uh, proclaiming oneself as victim is that you don't take responsibility for yourself. I mean, Trump is the Trump is the uh, you know the. the the poster boy for, for, for not taking responsibility. But um, yeah, I think evangelicals, uh, you know, the, the white evangelicals overwhelmingly supporting Donald Trump, they fall into that category as well, is that uh, they have, uh, they don't take responsibility for, for Trump or for their vote or whatever it might be. Um, so yeah, I think, that, I think you're right. I think you're right about that. Two more questions for you. I appreciate your time that you've given me today. Um, what can the election and presidency of Donald Trump tell us about the future of the Republican Party? Well, I usually shrug off those questions by saying I'm a historian, not a prognosticator. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I, I guess I don't see much uh, much space, much distance between the two at, at this point. That is the Donald Trump and the Republican Party, or for that matter, uh, white evangelicals. I don't see any repentance on the part of white evangelicals. I mean, and even you had in case of uh, Al Mohler, uh, somebody who had opposed Trump four years ago and 2020 comes to embrace him. Now, Mohler is always an opportunist, of course, in, in trying to, to advance his own interests and he has a history of doing that. But, um, yeah, I, I, I just don't. Uh, well, I mean, I've, I've written about this. I, I think that Election Day in 2016 marked the death of, of evangelicalism. And I, I say that reluctantly. I say that with deep, deep sadness, because this is the tradition uh, that certainly has shaped me. It's part of my DNA. Uh, I, 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 I try at various times to walk away from it. I really can't. Uh, in part because I understand the history of this movement. And I look back into the 19th century and I see that evangelicals were a, a great force for good in society. Now, did they get it right all the time? No, certainly they didn't. Uh, you had Southerners who defended slavery, for example, um, and you know, there's no way around that. You have to understand that. But if you look at the overall record, Northerners, such as people at Greenville University today, uh, were opposed to slavery and worked against it. Um, um, Houghton College, other places like that. Um, You have evangelicals who were concerned uh, about those Jesus called the least of these, working for prison reform, uh, working 
to establish common schools or public education, as we would call it today, because that was a way for those on the lower rungs of society to become upwardly mobile and to advance their their status in this world. Uh, you had uh, evangelicals, uh, uh, many evangelicals who supported uh, equality for women, uh, including voting rights, which was considered a radical notion in the 19th century. Um, so I look at that and I say, you know, this is a movement that has a, a, a very rich and colorful history. It's a checkered history. I don't. I don't dispute that, but overall, it's really quite remarkable. Uh, and then I look at the religious right today, and I just, I, I, I fail to see any, any connection. Um, I, I, and I, I get angry when people call this movement the Christian right, uh, uh, and I, I'm becoming more and more, more vociferous about this. Uh, it, the term Christian right to me is an oxymoron. Uh, I also find it deeply, deeply offensive. And what is Christian uh, about the religious right? Uh, I mean, I, I asked that question rhetorically, but nobody's been able to really answer that for me. You know, how is this in any way consistent with the admonition on the part of Jesus to care for the least of these, uh, to care for the prisoners, to to um, to to worry about widows and orphans, uh, to welcome the stranger. I mean, how is uh, is is an inkling of support for Donald Trump's immigration policies and this hideous wall that he's. He's he has constructed tried to construct uh, that not only uh, defaces uh, uh, the land, but it represents an utter, utter contradiction to the words of Scripture. Not only Jesus, the words of Jesus, but uh, the Hebrew Hebrew Bible as well. so I, I, I'm on a rant here. I'm not sure where I'm going, or I'm, I'm not sure even if I remember where your question was. But it, it's it's a it, it's a movement that has lost its soul. It's lost its moral compass. Now, does that mean the end of the movement? You know, I go back to the New Testament and I read that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead after his body had begun to stink. If Jesus can do that, Jesus can resurrect evangelicalism, I think. But uh, it's going it's to take some doing. Yeah, I think so, too. Touching back on, on racism for just one second here. Um, we talked about how Falwell and the moral majority tried to mask their racism by elevating this, this topic of, of being pro-life and abortion. Trump seemed to make it his calling card. Uh, going back to, you know, when he was showing up on Fox News in 2011, um, questioning uh, President Obama's, you know, birtherism and, and that whole movement. Um, what what effect do you think that has had on white evangelicals and Republican voters to go from this space where we're looking at, you know, it's 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 uncouth to be racist in public to now it's. It's what he's known for. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, I, I'm going to frame my answer in a little bit broader context just to, and try to, to try to get it at your point here. Yeah. Uh, of course, I mean, I'm not the only one who was trying to speculate after the 2016 election about why it is that 81 percent of white evangelicals 
it's important to, to emphasize white evangelicals supported Donald Trump in, in 2016. And I came up with three reasons. I'm not sure that any of them is, is particularly um, original to my thinking, but nevertheless, um, first, I think uh, the first reason is, is because of the religious rights, uh, historic and frequently stoked antipathy toward Hillary Clinton. I mean, she, this is a woman who rightly or wrongly, I think mostly wrongly has been demonized by the religious right ever since she entered public life in, in the, in the early 1990s. And I think, and I've talked to, to um, evangelical Trumpists who acknowledge they, they just couldn't imagine voting for Hillary Clinton in, in 2016. And I think, you know, I, I don't, I don't think the reasons are justified, but I, I do understand that the, that uh, that that uh, that hatred and 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 it just it just won't go away. I think that's one reason. I think the second reason is what I mentioned earlier: the the rhetoric of victimization and Trump being so fluent in that rhetoric of, of victimization, and uh, I think uh, evangelicals. White evangelicals responded to that. Even, you know, and, and again, let's step back and and spinning off your earlier comment about that. You know, think about how how improbable that is. You know, these are people of utter privilege in our society, and yet they're the victim. You're the one that are the ones who are under attack. I mean, it's just on the face of it, it's just it's it's so absurd that it 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 it, it, it seems impossible. But I think the third reason is, and this goes to our larger conversation. I think the third reason for white evangelical support for Trump in 2016 is that the 2016 election finally allowed leaders of the religious right and the religious right in general to uh, abandon the pretext that this was a movement about family values. You simply cannot make that argument and then cast your vote for Donald Trump. There's just no way you can make that argument in any uh, credible way to say that uh, voting for Donald Trump is an assertion of family values. So it, it, it raises the question again, why is that? And I think and I, uh, I have to say, I come to this conclusion reluctantly because I've often throughout my career, defended evangelicals against the charge of racism. But after 2016, I can no longer do that. I think the, the 2016 election and the overwhelming support for Donald Trump allowed white evangelicals finally to circle back to the charter principle behind their political activism, which was the defense of racial segregation, a defense of racism. I mean, you have to put it clearly. And uh, I think that is the third and probably the most important explanation for this improbable support uh, or seemingly improbable support for Donald Trump in 2016. And again, in 2020, um, you know, they, I'm not sure the numbers are out yet, but I heard a preliminary indication saying that was 78%. So a drop of only 3%, despite everything that we've seen over the last four years. Uh, and for me, uh, growing up as an evangelical, uh, 
one of the most damning indictments of Donald Trump is that, according to these fact checkers who are independent, uh, what was the final tally? Something it's it's over thirty thousand, over thirty thousand false or misleading statements in four years as president. Over thirty thousand, I think it's thirty thousand five hundred some false or misleading statements that this guy uh, and and you know, one of the things I was taught as an evangelical and you know maybe I have to blame my parents for it although I don't think it's blame was you tell the truth you you don't bear false witness and yeah telling the truth for me at times in my life has gotten me into trouble <laughs> but it, it's it's so deeply ingrained in me the importance of being honest and not and not telling a lie and then to turn around four years later and vote for someone who in the course of his presidency lied over 30,000 times. By contrast, by the way, by means of comparison, those same fact checkers accused Barack Obama of issuing a false or misleading statement 28 times in eight years as president of the United States. So I, you know, I, 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 I'm not sure how to wrap this up, but a uh, bit of a riff, I guess, but uh, it's, it's sad to me. And, 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 and as an evangelical, I have to say that, that, that this, um, this whole movement generally, the religious right, but, particularly the support for Trump has created a kind of existential crisis. I mean, I, how can I in good conscience claim this label for myself uh, when it's associated with such, um, such chicanery and such, such uh, um, uh, mendacity. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I guess I, I, I don't have a tidy way to wrap that up. No. Well, I think that's, I think that's one of the struggles that I want to try and get across with this, with this podcast is just this idea that like, you know, there are a lot of, there are a lot of folks, you know, 12% may not, or, you know, whatever the difference is between who voted for him and who didn't, you know, there is a percentage of folks who, are really wrestling with these and want to have these kind of conversations. And, you know, maybe they're shooting something out into the ether saying, surely there's somebody out there who's thinking this too. Um, what, what, what sort of, what sort of hope do you have for those folks um, who are looking for something like that? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, uh, you have to be hopeful. I think that I, I, after I remember after uh, I published Thy Kingdom Come, I, I did a, a little book tour on that. And and uh, somebody asked me that question. What what basis do you have for hope? You know, how can you be hopeful? And, and my first answer was, uh, you know, I didn't have an answer. I just kind of um, fumbled around. But then I got to thinking about it. Anyone who has children, I think, has to be hopeful. Uh, you, you don't have the luxury of despair. So uh, I have to remain hopeful I, you, because you, you want to leave your children a world that at least is viable, if not better than when you found it. And I'm not sure that you can say that it is right now. Um, so is there hope for evangelical? Yeah, I, I mean, there, there are, as you said, uh, voices, countervailing voices, uh, people I respect enormously, Jim Wallace, of course, uh, Ron Sider, is, 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 uh, Tony Campolo has devoted his life to, um, to turning this around. And uh, 
uh, you know, Lisa Sharon Harper and uh, Shane Claiborne. And, you know, there's there's a there's a fairly extensive extensive list of really wonderful people who have really uh, tried to stand in the breach. And I think, you know, I come back to the words of Jesus. You know, Jesus tells us to preach the gospel. And as Jacques Ellul noted long ago, he didn't tell us to worry about the effects of our preaching. He said, in effect, preach the gospel, leave it to me. And I think we're probably in a moment in evangelical history when we have to do that. We have to simply preach the gospel, even though it's unpopular, even though it may not uh, elicit the response that we're looking for. But Jesus asks us to be faithful and to preach the, the gospel, the good news of redemption and uh, leave the results to him. Uh, we're, we're at a, a bleak moment, um, I think. Uh, there's no there's any question about it in the history of evangelicalism. But uh, as I say, if uh, Jesus can raise Lazarus from the dead, Jesus could do pretty much anything. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I certainly hope so. <laughs> um, Dr. Balmer, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, it's been a wonderful conversation, and it's it's wonderful to know that we have uh, some some common friends in the yeah, Greenville world. So that's right. Um, have you been to Greenville's campus before? I've 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 uh, given their convocation. Oh wow! Okay, uh, at least one time, and I was there for some lectures. I think another time, so at least twice I've been there. Yeah, no, it's a, it's 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 a it's a good place, and and these these colleges, uh, you know. I am. I, I'm a graduate of Trinity College up in. Uh, oh, near Chicago, Northern Illinois. Yeah, yeah. and uh, and I was shaped profoundly by that experience, and I'm forever grateful to that. I, and and my experience, you know, without you know knowing you very well, uh, was very similar to yours. I came with one set of ideas, um, and and left. I think with with the different understanding of the faith, uh, but I think a deeper, without any question, a deeper, more profound understanding of the faith because of my time there. So these places are very important. They're kind of halfway houses, I think, for those <laughs> of us who grew up uh, fundamentalist. I like, um, I like that. I like that. Uh, yeah, that terminology. <laughs> very important places. So uh, uh, I, I honor that. So that's wonderful. Well, my thank pleasure. You so, thank you so much for your time. I, I greatly appreciate it. Um, and, uh, and I'll be sure to to share with you when it's all wrapped up. So um, I appreciate that. I look forward to it. Yeah. So thank you so much. Have a good right. uh, rest of your day. Thank you, Matthew. Take care. Thanks for checking out the deluxe edition. Make sure to subscribe to the newsletter. You can do that at the link in the show notes. Our theme song is Apophenia by Ross Christopher. My next interview is with author and professor of history at West Georgia University, Daniel K. Williams. Thanks for listening.